This is week three for us in John 17. John 17 is the final chapter of the farewell discourse. If you've been here over the last several weeks and even going back several months, you know that the farewell discourse was delivered in the context of the Passover celebration. We call it the farewell discourse because Jesus is literally saying farewell. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. And so if you want to think about the basic order of events on this night, it looks something like this. John 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. After he washes their feet, he teaches them. That's the the content of the farewell discourse. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He changes the Passover into the Lord's Supper. He changes the meaning of this ancient feast. He prayed the high priestly prayer, which is John 17, which we're looking at this morning and we've looked at the last two weeks. And then at some point he leads the disciples out of Jerusalem, across the valley, into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays again and where he's arrested, and then the next day he's crucified. Our passage, John 17, is called the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus interceding for his people. And the prayer breaks down into three very clear, very distinct sections. The first section, verse 1 to 5, Jesus prayed for himself. Specifically, he prayed that he would be glorified. The second section we looked at last week, verse 6 to 19, Jesus prayed for the disciples or for the apostles, for the 12 men minus Judas who would be the foundation of the church. In the last section, the section we're looking at this morning, Jesus prays for all believers, for anyone who might believe the good news of the gospel through the testimony of the apostles, whether that testimony was visibly heard or whether that testimony is read in the scriptures. So last week we made a quick reference to Ephesians 2 in the book of Acts simply to say that the apostles, the disciples, the men in the room with Jesus, the men he prayed for in that middle portion of the prayer, those men were the foundation of the church. They were the men that established the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2,000 years later, we are part of that church, that very same church that was established by the apostles. And so Jesus prayed for the men who had established the church. And then as we see this morning, he prayed for the church itself. And so here's the big idea of our passage. In the high priestly prayer, this final section, Jesus prays for believers and their salvation. He prays for believers and their salvation. I mentioned this the last two weeks, and I'm going to mention it one more time. I just want you to think about what it is that we're reading in John 17. It's really a remarkable thing that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night before he was crucified, would stop to pray, first for himself and for his own glory, and then for the apostles, the men in the room with him who would establish the church, and then thirdly, for Christians, for believers. It's a remarkable thing anytime somebody prays for you, especially when they tell you that they're praying for you, and especially when they tell you they're praying for you and they actually pray for you. It's a remarkable thing. It's remarkable to think that another person would care enough about you as a human being to pray for you It's a remarkable thing to think that another 
person, another Christian, not only cares enough about you to pray for you, but that they would spend some of their time, think about what's happening in prayer, talking to the creator of the universe on your behalf. That's a remarkable thing. As a pastor, I talk with people who are in various situations that you might describe as suffering. Spoke with somebody this last week who was suffering, has been suffering with illness, been in the hospital, out, still trying to recover. When I talk to people like that, many times they say, you know, I've been humbled. That's the word they use a lot of the time. I've been humbled to know that people are praying for me. I don't know the last time you've had that experience. I hope that at some point in your life you've had that experience where other people were praying for you and you knew it, and you probably felt that very same thing where you thought, I'm, I'm humbled. It's a remarkable thing that somebody would pray for you. I don't know the last time that you had that experience, but this morning we have that experience. And it's way better than me praying for you It's way better than the people in your Sunday school class praying for you, as valuable as both of those things are. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, God the Son talking to God the Father for you on your behalf. It's a remarkable thing. It's no wonder that many commentators describe John 17 as the holy of holies in Scripture where you get to listen in to this Trinitarian conversation, God the Son talking to God the Father in this last section, talking to the Father on our behalf. So the question we've asked the last two weeks and we're going to ask this morning is how? How did Jesus pray for himself and his own glory? How did he pray for the disciples and for their mission, their ministry? And this morning, how did he pray for believers in their salvation. First, I want you to see this. Jesus prayed with a focus on belief. Belief. We tend to use the English word faith more than the word belief, but really they mean the same thing. Look at verse 20, John 17, 20. Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, for the disciples, the apostles, the 12 minus Judas. I don't pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. We've talked about this as we've made our way through the Gospel of John. I just want to remind you of a couple of Greek terms. Pistis is a Greek noun. It means faith or belief. The same Greek root can be a verb, pistuo, and it means believe. And many times you hear people talk about believing and faith, and they try to say they're two different things. They're not two different things. One's a verb and one's a noun. And Jesus is praying about our belief. He's praying about our belief. He's praying that we would believe. This is a major theme in the gospel of John. John, as he talks about faith, always uses the verb form. Always uses the verb form. And he calls people to believe. How many times have we looked at this passage? John 20, 30 to 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. They're not written in this book. These are written that you may believe. There's our word that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life 
in his name. This is the gospel message, that there is a holy God who has love for sinful people, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die our death on the cross, and that if we turn from our sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved. That's what John's writing about. John did not write this book to say, here's how you can be a better person. That's not the point of the book. The point of the book is that you would believe in Jesus. John didn't write this book to say, hey, I have some helpful life tips for you. Follow these steps and everything's going to be great. That's not what he's writing about. He's writing that you would believe the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. This good news requires proclamation and it requires a response. There are many passages we could look at. I just want you to consider Romans 10. Paul says this in Romans 10. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you back up in Romans 10, he's described, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? It means that you believe with your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe that message. And he says, everyone who does that, who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? His conclusion is this, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith, same word, same idea, same concept, faith, believing comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. As we continue to press in through this study of the gospel of John, the question each and every week is, do you believe the truth about Jesus? It's not, do you believe that there is a God up there? Not, do you have some generic belief in a higher power? It's do you believe, do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's why John wrote this gospel, and that's what Jesus prayed for the night before he was crucified in our stead, that they would believe, that we would believe. Secondly, he prays with a focus on unity. Unity. Look at 21, 22, and 23. He wants them to believe through the word of the apostles, verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, there's unity within the Godhead, in the same way that they also may be in us, we're united to Christ, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Listen, Jesus says a lot in those verses. He's praying about a lot of different things. And we could drill down deep and talk about a lot of different doctrinal theological things. But the theme that unites those three verses is unity. He cares about unity. He's praying for unity. Just like the Father and the Son are united in the Godhead, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, he prays that believers united to Jesus would be united with each other. And he connects that to our witness as a church and to his glory. 
consider these quotes. Puritan, Thomas Manton. Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. You may not think that you are an active promoter of atheism. According to Manton, all you have to do is create division in the church and you are promoting atheism in the world. Pastor John MacArthur says it like this, the effectiveness of the church's evangelism is devastated by dissensions and disputes among its members. I know people in this town just like you do. I have people in my family just like you do who will look you in the eye and say, I don't go to church because back whenever this happened, this fight, this conflict, this division, this dissension, this whatever. Now look, you and I both know that many times that's simply an excuse and a poor one. We all know that. Many times people just use something like that to do what they want to do anyways. But we also know, if you've been around church for any length of time, that divisions and dissensions and disputes in the church do hurt people. And that hurt can have long-lasting, devastating, generational consequences. Jesus is praying about this issue. The night before he's crucified, of all of the things that he could pray for, as he thinks about the church, as he thinks about Christians, as he thinks about believers, he says, I'm going to pray for their unity. Now look, a lot of people in the 21st century like to quote this passage as part of the prayer and say to you and me, unity is more important than anything else. Unity at all costs. Unity even if we don't agree on what is true. That's not what Jesus is praying about. We've got to be clear about that. He's not praying at unity despite the truth. He's praying about unity in the truth. Do you remember what we just looked at last week? John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. There is no sanctification apart from the truth of the gospel and there is no real unity apart from the truth of of the gospel. So when we talk about unity, we're not just saying, well, just pretend all our disagreements are no big deal and let's all get together and just be together. That's not what he's praying about. That's not what he's thinking about. He's talking about unity in the truth. And you can go look at the book of Galatians. The apostle Paul went on a mission trip to the region of Galatia. He planted churches in Galatia. He left those churches, and when he left, he heard that they had departed from the good news of the gospel. They had once believed that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But Paul heard that they no longer believed that salvation was through faith alone. They were adding good works to that mix. And when Paul wrote those people in Galatia a letter, he did not say, you know, that's doctrinal minutiae. You know, that's, you know, it's theological out in the weeds, out in left field. Nobody really cares about this stuff. What really matters is that you just get together. He didn't say any of that stuff. He wrote to this church and he said, you have deserted the one who called you, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've deserted him. You've left him. He says, you have distorted the gospel. You've perverted it. You've changed it. You've twisted it 
into something that it was never intended to be. When Jesus prays about unity, he's praying that you and I would be unified, not in spite of the truth, but in the truth of the gospel. So he prays about belief. He prays about unity. Thirdly, he prays with a focus on eternity. Eternity. Look what he says in verse 24. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You hear what Jesus is praying for you? I'm going to read it one more time. This is a remarkable piece of the passage. Father, I desire that they also, who's the they? Back up to verse 20. It's those who will believe in me through their word, through the word of the apostles. I desire that believers, the people you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Maybe you remember back in John 14, it's part of the, the farewell discourse. One of the things Jesus prayed back in John 14, one of the things he said to the disciples is, I'm leaving, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm coming back to get you. Why? So that where I am, you can be. That's the best part of heaven. That's the best part of eternity. You get to be in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. He's preparing a place. It's going to be a great place. And he's coming back for you. It's going to be a phenomenal moment. But it's all for one end that you may be with him where he is. This is part of the Christian answer, the the Christian answer to the question, what happens after death? You understand that every worldview, every human being on planet earth has to answer that question in some way, shape, or form. What happens after we die? The naturalist says, after you die, you get eaten by worms. The circle of life and all that. That's encouraging. The Marxist says nothing happens, nothing. There is no God, there is no heaven, there is no eternity. That's why we need to create heaven or a utopia or the perfect place here on the earth because once you're gone, you don't have any hope of going to a perfect place. The Muslim has an answer. The Muslim says, after you die, there will be a judgment, to which we say, hey, we agree with that. But the Muslim then says, you'd better hope your good outweighs your bad on the day of judgment because it's all going to be up to you and how good you were or how bad you were. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that man is destined to die once and then face judgment. And as you, a sinful person, stand before the holy God, you have no hope of salvation or eternity or heaven apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've repented of your sin and you have believed the good news about Jesus, you, take this in, can spend eternity with God. Jesus says in verse 24 that he desires 
this. He says, you've given me a people. I desire that they would be with me. How remarkable that the creator desires a relationship with the creature. We tend to think that we're entitled to that. We're not in any way, shape, or form. And yet he desires it. It's why he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He desired to be with them. It's why when he used Moses to bring a stubborn, wicked, rebellious people out of slavery in Egypt, he said, hey, I need you to build me a tent and put it right in the middle of the camp because I want to be with you. It's amazing. It's why he told Solomon many years later when they'd settled in the land, they had a capital. He said, I want you to build a a temple and I'm going to live in the midst of my people. It's why God took on human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He has a desire to be with us. It's why the book of Revelation says in the new heavens and the new earth, God's people will be with God. They will be his people. He will be their God and they will be together in relationship. Jesus desires that and he prays about it. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Look, in 2021, you and I meet people every day who are desperately, desperately looking for some place to find identity and meaning and value and significance. People are hungry for that. They're desperate for that. And they are looking all over the place. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 12. He says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If you're looking to root your identity, your value, your meaning, your purpose, your significance in money and the square footage of your house and the size of your bank account or your 401k, Jesus just says, you gotta knock it off. Your life does not consist in how much money you have. That's a poor place to find your identity and your value. I don't want to change Jesus' words here, but maybe we could just sort of use the same phrase and say, one's life also, also does not consist in one's race. That's not the best place to root your identity. Maybe we could say, one's life does not consist in sexuality. The world says that's the end-all, be-all definition of who you are as a human. The Bible doesn't say that. Maybe we could say, one's life does not consist in your victim status, whether that's real or perceived or imagined or whatever. That's not the sum total of your life. Don't root your identity in those things. Maybe we would say one's life does not consist in the the amount of degrees that you have or the education that you have. That's not the sum total of who you ought to be. One's life does not consist in your profession, whether that be preaching or teaching or working in the oil field. That's not the sum total of your life. Where do we look? to ground our identity and our value and significance and meaning and purpose and all of that, we look to the Bible. And the Bible says, here's the solid ground that you can build your identity on. You as a human being are created in the image of Almighty God. You're an image bearer. You're also a sinner. 
You've fallen short of his standard and you've rebelled against him. But God, the creator, in love for the creature, sent his son to redeem us, to buy us back. In verse 24, Jesus says, I desire, something that he wants. I desire that they, the ones you've given me, will be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me, the Father's given the Son, because you loved me. The Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. That's where you ground your identity. It's not in all the temporal things that the world says are the most important. But it's who you are as an image bearer, who you are as a redeemed sinner who will spend eternity with Jesus. Lastly, Jesus prayed with a focus on love. A focus on love. Look what he says in verse 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them, and I in them. He has made God's character known, his name, his glory. He's revealed it to the disciples. He'll reveal it to his church so that the love the Father has for the Son might be in us. He's praying about love. Last week we made brief reference to a a worldview controlled by something called critical theory. I want to revisit that one more time this week. Some people say that uh, the critical theory thought and idea is a result of modernism and some people say no, it's the result of postmodernism. But Virtually everyone agrees this is the dominant worldview of the academy. It's the dominant worldview of the media. It's the dominant worldview uh, of what you see largely on social media. It's the dominant worldview that you find in the entertainment industry. It is a worldview that hates the idea that God determines your identity. It's a worldview that desperately wants to claim our own identity apart from God. And it's a worldview that hates any expression of freedom, whether that be freedom of religion or freedom of speech or just freedom of expression broadly. It hates these things. And it is a worldview when you really drill down deep. There's all sorts of manifestations. You see them all over the place. The one thing they all have in common is an obsession with power. Power. It's all about power. It's all about power. They want to know who has the power and how can we take it from them? How can we get it out of their hands? How can we give it to the people who don't have the power? Which then creates an interesting dynamic of, well, then they have the power and others don't. And it's an endless cycle. It's intentionally an endless cycle. Cycle. Look, we live in this world. We breathe this air all the time. We see these things being directed our way as Christians all the time, this thirst and this quest for power. And if we're not careful, we will begin to think that the point of the Christian life is amassing power. It's not. Jesus doesn't pray about our power here. He prays about love. Love. The Christian worldview is radically on every level different than the worldview that dominates the culture that we live in. It's completely different on every level, including this one, that we are not obsessed with power, at least we ought not be, 
We ought to be focused on love, love for God and love for neighbor. Look what we read in John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Really, that's a summary of everything that we've talked about this morning. Everything we've said and we've seen in this prayer is found in that verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is part of the bedrock of the Christian worldview, the love of God, and is part of the end goal of the Christian worldview, love for God and love for neighbor. We're not to be people obsessed with power. We're to be people called to love. 1 Corinthians 13, Apostle Paul talks about faith, hope, and love. He says, the greatest of these, the one that will last, is love. Faith will be fulfilled. It'll come to an end. Hope will be fulfilled. It'll come to an end. The greatest of these is love. And Jesus prays about it. On the night he was crucified, the night before he was crucified, as he is voluntarily giving up power to die for our sins, he prays for us, and he prays that we would be people who love, that the love of the Father for the Son would be in us, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we love our neighbor as ourself. He prayed for that. We'll pray for that. Join me as we pray.